Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have a special episode that was recorded live at the Center for Architecture in New York City at the exhibit Cairo Modern. And this conversation takes place between two people behind the exhibit, the curator Mohammed Shahid, who is also the author of Cairo since 1900, an architectural guide, and Afikra's own Rami Abu Khalil, who is an architect in his own right and was the exhibition designer. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, if you'd like to attend these events in person, go to afikra.com/rsvp. Hope you enjoy. Mohamed uh, Shahid is a fiercely independent curator, architectural historian, and a critic focusing on architecture, design, and material culture of the 20th century Egypt and the broader Arab region. He is the author of the highly acclaimed and best-selling book Cairo since 1900: An Architectural Guide. That was published in 2020, and you can see it upstairs in the gallery. He's the winner of the 2021 Egypt State Award for Architectural Publication. Uh, with his book, uh, his book "Revolutionary Modernism: Architecture and the Politics of Change in Egypt Between 1936 and 1967," was published by Egypt's National Center for Translation uh, in Arabic. Previous curatorial projects before this particular exhibition include uh, Cairo Now uh, at the Dubai Design Week in 2016. The past is present, becoming Egyptian in the 20th century at the British Museum in 2018. Uh, Modern urban cultures in transit at the Vitra Design Museum in 2017. He is the curator of the British Museum's Modern Egypt project and Egypt's winning pavilion uh, at the 2018 London Design Biennale. In 2019, Apollo Magazine named him among the 40 under 40 influential thinkers and artists in the Middle East. And in 2011, he founded Cairo Observer, which is a multifaceted platform that again explores uh, culture in in Egypt and and the Arab world at large. More importantly, I was extremely fortunate to work with Mohammed on this exhibition, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. So, welcome back to New York, Mohammed. <laughs> Thank you, Rami. Thank you very much um, for hosting this conversation. So, for everybody here who uh, maybe doesn't know you very well, can you tell us a little bit about your Trajectory and how you ended up uh, sort of in the curatorial uh, and and uh, architectural history world. So I started out um, as a an architecture student, um, actually across the river in New Jersey at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And shortly after starting that degree, uh, driven by curiosity in architecture, based on my upbringing and in Alexandria in particular and in Kuwait as well, um, that sort of uh, Generated an interest in architecture, so that's how I ended up studying it. But it was very quick after that I realized that there's more to what I would like to explore in architecture than what the professional degree was going to lead to. At least not, it wasn't necessarily looking like it would have been for me. I was, for example, very frightened by the prospects of having to use AutoCAD. So, um, so from there, and um, and actually, this is one of those occasions in which. Uh, crossing paths with um, a certain sort of uh, good doer uh, makes things happen. So one of my professors suggested why not uh, go on and do a master's, and that's what got me to MIT's Aachen um, program for Islamic architecture, which interestingly at the time was focused, uh, as the title of the program suggests, on more perhaps uh, pre-modern um, architectures of the predominantly Muslim societies. Um, and uh, my interests were pretty much uh, modern and 20th century. Uh, so I remember when I was starting that program in 2005, I was, you know, one of the f- still first batch of 
of people throughout the program's entire history that who focused on a, on a modern topic. And I think since then things have changed a bit because typically um, when we talk about Islamic societies or the Muslim world or Arab world, um, in terms of architecture, the focus has been pre-modern, whatever that means. And typically that means pre-colonial encounter. So from there, um, there were a lot of issues, I guess, or limitations within an architecture a program to discuss some of the issues that uh, were of interest to me. You can't talk about the 20th century and architecture without talking about politics. Uh, that's what actually got me to NYU, uh, just around the corner uh, in the Middle East Studies program. Uh, so I can explore these topics further. So as you can see, it's kind of a journey that it's uh, academically, at least, that sort of hopped um, from one island to another, and those islands tended to have very little communication with one another uh, as sort of academic disciplines or areas of study. Um, yeah, so really after my PhD, um, which uh, I submitted in 2014, a couple of opportunities opened up. I had already been living in Egypt since 2010. And so being already there and having already established Cairo Observer um, and being energized by what the city had to offer um, and also witnessing the destruction of quite a lot of the architecture and urban fabric of that place, uh, several opportunities brought me into the curatorial world. Uh, one would be, uh, for example, that uh, Dubai Design Week exhibition Cairo Now, City Incomplete uh, exhibit. Um, and then there was the British Museum opportunity, which was um, focused on collecting objects of uh, material culture to be added to the museum's collection. And those objects were meant to be of everyday life, um, to basically be able to speak about the politics, culture, um, and um, consumption and production of uh, 20th century Egypt. We're going to be talking uh, a lot about the exhibition itself, I think. But before mm -hmm. we do that, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about Cairo Observer. Uh, for everybody here who doesn't already follow Cairo Observer, check it out on Instagram for sure, because it's, um, it's really just an incredible sort of visual and narrative journey through Egyptian history. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started that? Because I do think that that in a way leads to the kind of uh, thinking that informs the exhibition. Yeah, so like I said, I arrived uh, back in Egypt uh, in 2010. The last time I had lived in Egypt full time was... Um, when my family immigrated to the United States in 1995. So in that 15-year gap, um, I basically, uh, uh, you know, I hadn't been living in Egypt and, and I had become an adult and a different person in a way. Well, But, you know, it was a new side of me, I suppose, uh, trying to understand this place. Um, and so I saw things, I think, with an eye that a lot of the people that I was meeting in Cairo who had been there the whole time uh, weren't necessarily, were taken for granted, as always happens when you live in a place uh, and then an outsider comes or a visitor comes. Um, you know, you start to hear things about your everyday from a different perspective. And so I was always talking and commenting about um, um, urban issues in the city. Um, let's say the most common example, and it's something that I feel a lot of the Arab world suffers from, is how counterintuitive a lot of the interventions um, tend to be, which are very top down. Um, and so to me, it always seemed a bit odd because it always seemed like what a lot of effort was being put into doing, making things more difficult. Um, and I think now with some hindsight, we have better understanding of the politics behind this. Uh, it always was explained as stupidity. You know, that's a very common way of uh, explaining or for a society, I guess, to deal with these kinds of under that kind of pressure to explain these kinds of interventions. 
but I would say that's a very facile way of uh, understanding what's what is still happening and what has been happening. Um, you know, because these interventions require plans, budgets, uh, and someone to actually make them happen. Um, whether uh, you know it's also laws that lead to the destruction of, of fabrics, uh, historical fabrics. Um, you know, the, there's effort put behind this. So I wouldn't discount all of this as. Uh, stupidity. It's clearly part of some sort of political agenda that's that's been on the table. So at the time, this was pre-2011. When 2011 erupted, um, and I lived literally blocks away from Tahrir Square, so it was kind of uh, meant to be that I witnessed this. Um, and I think witnessing here is a, an interesting word that just came up because, um, you know, that's how I thought of the idea of observer, Cairo observer, uh, as a sort of a witness, which also happens to be weirdly enough, and it didn't, took me years to even make the connection, but, you know, my last name, Al-Shahid, is also witness. Uh, so somehow it was also kind of meant to be. And the idea was to really start it as a blog where I air out these uh, observations about the, yeah, these things that I just discussed. Um, but it kind of grew uh, an audience quite fast. Um, I'm not an institution-oriented person, um, I actually at all. I'm just not wired that way. So unlike Afikra, for example, which from 2014 until now has grown to a, a kind of a global network of, of various chapters and, and that sort of thing, Terror Observer from the beginning till now is basically a one-person project. Um, it's essentially my pen name. <laughs> um, um, although it has opened, yeah. One thing that is interesting about that that I want to quiz you, and again, that informs exhibitions like the one that we saw or that informs sort of your, your more formal, let's say, publication work, is that Cairo Observer is a very graphic medium mm -hmm. and is also a very democratic medium, right? It's on Instagram. It's sort of bite-sized. It's easily digestible. It's extremely graphic. I mean, it's just so, you know, your, your, one of your strengths is just kind of graphic curation, sort of crafting the stories around that. So what's your experience been like in terms of, you know, again, spreading narratives in this very democratic way or very accessible way? Um, so there's two things to say on the use of the term democratic here. So uh, when it started as a blog, that was one thing. But quickly, I realized that part of the popularity uh, in terms of an audience building up um, was the fact that there was very little space um, for people, whether outside Cairo, to read about the issues I was writing about on Cairo, um, which actually is part of why this kind of project that you see upstairs is there. Uh, it's trying to fill in a narrative, or I always like to use the metaphor of a, of a, of a picture that has parts of it pixelated. So if the world is set of a picture, um, we certainly have parts that are crisp, clear and then others that are really pixelated that makes it really difficult for someone to navigate across the whole picture so it was an effort to fill in so and also for Tyrians and Egyptians in general especially architecture students um, there's very little space so it did open up for uh, the years that I was living full-time in Cairo um, and people can still browse CairoObserver.com and they'll see content in by a wide variety of people I would say that's kind of the democratic moment of the platform and then you know after the British Museum job and, and other things I stopped the, the blogging for many reasons and we can talk about this a lot of the content actually kind of shifted to Facebook and then I got off Facebook to protest that platform <laughs> and unfortunately in the meantime it bought Instagram which I only joined relatively recently so the Cairo Observer page on Instagram is only a couple of years old um, and so that's just me mostly curating the content that you see on there but yes it, it does have I suppose the the openness that yeah it's accessible um, um, I, I recently started to 
do my best to include captions in both Arabic and English when I can. Um, and yeah, of course, the discussion and comment section is always, um, yeah, sometimes depends on the post as a space for, for debate. The graphic bit, uh, I think it's just the nature of the material that attracts me. Um, I am a very visual person, and I do think that part of what um, has been kind of made blurry in our imagination of our cities and our visual cultures of the 20th century and until now uh, is the visual element. I mean, Google image search, I think, made things really obvious for me when I, you know, 10 years ago when Google had just started, um, a Google image search for Cairo gave you like basically five prototypical images. And I think you can do this for a lot of global South uh, locations where the the prominent representation even through a platform that seems to be democratic in the sense that you know everybody thinks that if you have access to the internet or google that means somehow you're connected to the world although you would if i asked anybody what do you think is going on in china today like they'll have no idea you know like so or like or even somewhere in latin america they'll have no idea so i mean i think the illusion of connectedness is one issue here but the other issue is that we rely too much on what these platforms propose that they can offer. So the Google image searches, when I was doing my research uh, and, and trying to also find content for Cairo Observer was so limited. I think this has cha changed a bit. It's still not incredible uh, or representative. Along the process of doing this, I realized, okay, there's a need for more images out there. So let's let's get into that in the in the context of this exhibition. To put together an exhibition like this, what are what are the primary sources that you can rely on to actually gather this photographic material and information? We have very limited options. You know, one of the consequences of when we talk about colonialism, and it's really interesting that you know it depends on who you are. The concept of colonialism means very different things. So for some people, it's this thing that conveniently just happened and ended some time ago, and you know, there's no connection with others. It's an ongoing process um, with others. It's a lived experience. So it really depends. But one of the consequences is access to information, uh, access to images, most important, importantly. I mean, for example, if you want to look at um, footage of pretty key 20th century events that really shape our realities today. The most reliable or maybe not reliable, but accessible footage, maybe if you find something will be something like British Pathé, which is like a propaganda arm of, of the British military and state, essentially. Um, and so the narrative that's provided and the images are provided all like, you know, it's, it's really imagine trying to talk about uh, an event that involves British colonialism in a place like Egypt, but my only accessible um, set of footage uh, online is coming from a British propaganda media outlet. So, you know, very problematic, very limiting. Uh, you know, for another example that I can give just upfront, when I was doing the, the, the timeline that you saw upstairs on, on one of the walls, uh, images that had to do with really critical issues that have to do with apartheid, colonialism, and so on, uh, those were not the ones on, usually on public domains. You had to really find, dig hard, and, you know, the, the, the sort of the images that drive home the point of what was going on, atrocities, uh, that sort of thing, they're not available, they're not accessible, and when they do exist, they're not public domain, they're owned by corporations or the sort of more philanthropic um, sort of legs or arms of, uh, of corporations. Um, that essentially benefited from our colonial history, like the Getty, for example. That's an oil tycoon. Um, but so trying to find the images about apartheid and, um, and and colonialism that are owned by the Getty in order to show them in an, in an anti or like a 
a post-colonial exhibit or publication, that's a pretty um, kind of twisted way of going around knowledge production, I think. Um, but that also is a, a um, you know, it's very clear indication of, of how things are at the moment. Yeah, and so I think another another facet of this that I think came into play very early on when we started talking about the exhibition is uh, the whole sort of gendered aspect of it and of architectural history. One aspect of it that is somewhat made evident in the exhibition above is that um, a lot of modern architecture in the in the early days in the 30s uh, and 40s was propagated by female patrons and female patrons had a sort of a very prominent role in actually you know hiring architects encouraging the modern style to to spread in that context etc and yet that's a very difficult story to tell from an archival point of view or from a uh, again a kind of graphic point of view right yeah yeah um, a great point because uh, it was important for me. I mean, for example, a lot of the interest currently on women in architecture tends to focus on the architect as a profession. Right. Uh, so as a side point, just to start off, you know, uh, if you look at a lot of the schools of architecture across the region today, uh, certainly in Egypt, I'm not really sure I can generalize about a lot of other places, but I know certainly in Egypt, architecture schools are completely dominated by, or not dominated, but there's a very strong uh, presence of women in uh, the student body and also in the teaching, uh, the faculty. But that's not present somehow in the profession. So a lot of people, and there's a lot to be said about why that is, you know, um, how that translates. But looking back um, into this period that I was looking into for the exhibit and for the book, um, I think if we want to understand the role of, well, anyone really in, in a situation, it's, it shouldn't be through one lens of who is, because I think ultimately the overglorification of the architect as an artist, as opposed to as a service provider, um, assumes that that would be the best entry point to understand something like the gender dynamic of the profession and its relationship to you know, architectural production in terms of you know, the place of women. But um, in a place like Egypt where architects saw themselves as service providers, not as artists and they have not been celebrated by historians as artists, but rather as people who provided services. Uh, and more in, in that hierarchy, uh, a person that's higher above is the client. And a lot of the clients are women. And I think this is where it becomes really interesting. Um, so quite a few of the projects upstairs, but also in, in my book, and as much as I was able to find, I wasn't honestly going out of my way to find it. But when I when I saw it, it struck me one time after another, after another. And I thought, okay, this obviously is a point, you know, only in the end of writing the book, when I was writing my introduction, I thought, yeah, this is a, a point that needs to be mentioned in the introduction, because I did sort of encounter it as I was going through. Um, but there's one thing that you said, which is the idea of propagating a style. And I would actually disagree. It wasn't so much about propagating a style. Um, it was uh, patrons creating, a lot of them, for example, um, were, uh, institutions that uh, or buildings that were to uh, have a charitable arm um, in in one case for example um, at least that's in the book um, it's a woman who is commissioning an architect to create a building that would house an institution that would be run by women most actually all for women except for boys uh, up until a certain age uh, students um, it, it had space for elderly women. It had space for women who want to leave their homes for social disputes and have a, a shelter, have a place to go to. And it had space for boys and girls um, 
to get primary uh, essential education uh, up until a certain age. Um, and it was all meant to be run by women. So I feel like that, where is this story in conversations around women in architecture on a global scale, for example? Right, right. Um, um, I want to I be a little bit mindful of time. So I'm going to ask you one more question. And then in the meanwhile, uh, we'll gather some questions from the audience. You can just raise your hand if you have, if you have a question for, for Muhammad. Hamid, what's your favorite building in the in the exhibition upstairs? What's the one that you that you look at and you're like, ah, oh, this one, this really. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll be very, uh, and maybe now that the exhibition is coming to a close, you know, when I was doing the selection for the book, even it was not about what I like. Uh, of course, that influenced some of the choices. So, for example, it's very clear that I'm very drawn to say Karim as a figure, uh, but mostly because I empathize with his narrative, which is actually a. Unfortunately, I see that where he lived from the 1930s until he was put under house arrest and have his career end in, uh, in 1965. Uh, I'm kind of able to see that happening today and affecting even my own career and life in many ways. So my interest in him is more about the person as opposed to the architecture, the aesthetics. Um, but yes, he's very present. But I don't have really a favorite. Um, and when I was doing the selection, it was more based on other um, you know, where do we have information available? What would create um, less of a monotonous uh, picture of the situation? So different types of buildings, different scales of buildings, uh, different locations of buildings, um, you know, that those are were more interesting for me. For me as an architect, I look at them and I just kind of dissect them aesthetically, <laughs> architecturally, yeah. and I definitely have my favorites. <laughs> yeah, please share, you should be, honestly, please tell us, yes. Oh, well, mine is the, the Villa Badran or which is, I think, the last one. It's the most, the latest one in the show, and it also has a really interesting preservation story where it's been completely disfigured as a kind of restaurant and a yeah. kind of pastiche uh, restaurant. So, for me, it just it really encapsulates some of the some of the urgencies also of the show. You know, well, uh, uh, right? Should we take a, a few questions? Maybe yeah, the audience. One that one that I really found interesting was it was like. Um, at the American University of Cairo. And it was kind of an early forerunner in kind of energy efficiency, the way it reflected light. And it was damaged during the 2011 Arab Spring and then was subsequently demolished in 2015. Mm -hmm. So could you, I guess it's a two-part question. One, anything about that building in particular, because I was really struck by it. And two, is there a red thread to preservation efforts on the ground today, either through civil society or the Lebanese government, or sorry, the Egyptian government? <laughs> well, great choice. I think for me, what was there was two reasons I was interested in this building. One was uh, I came across an image of it um, in, at the American University Archive, and um, because it because it's a university archive, there's you know more availability of some photograph uh, phot photographic material and, and so and so on. Um, and then I dug a bit deeper. And also I remember it from being in Tahrir Square in 2011. Uh, and actually my memory of the building was less having to do with the design, but actually with the fact that it was used, the rooftop was used by snipers to shoot at protesters. And in fact, I think that was the main motivation behind the American University uh, deciding to demolish it, even though they are very reluctant to, um, to, to say this. I would say, you know, what's really interesting about the design aspect of it, you know, the use of brisolets and um, energy efficient kind of passive uh, energy sort of design elements. Um, you know, there's a longer history of this, uh, much longer than that building. 
um, in tradition, what, what it's been typically called traditional architecture. But I think, uh, you know, with the separation between the modern and the traditional, and then the, uh, the creation of what makes for um, uh, an energy efficient building and design. So Brissolet and all these aspects and how the building is oriented are sort of listed. Well, that one checked those marks. Um, so my interest in it, it really comes from both the archival bit, the, the passive uh, energy design bit, but also um, the historical bit, not only about when it was built, when a science program was created at the American University in Cairo, but also uh, the motivations behind why it was demolished, um, being having been basically used for criminal purposes. Um, so, yeah. Um, hi, uh, I'm an architecture student right now, and it was mentioned in my history class that um, modernism was somewhat influenced by vernacular Northern African architecture. Yeah. Um, and something I was wondering about was your take on how the influences of vernacular architecture made its way into modernism and was somehow reintroduced back to Egypt through like a so-called European migration and um, the unfair like representation that uh, it was called degenerate um, with the upcoming war on Europe. So I guess I was just wondering about your take on that. Mm. Um, well, so if we go back to that point that I was making about the notion of a, kind of an eternal present, uh, you know, a lot of one of the main motivations behind colonialism um, was to to say something along the lines that um, X and Y place um, has been stagnant for hundreds of years. And one of the evidence for this is that, look, they're still building uh, in the same way for hundreds of years. Well, now that we've tried this supposedly different approach for the last 150 years with the planet coming to a catastrophic climate, uh, you know, situation because of um, because of essentially these supposedly better approaches, um, those approaches that lasted and were perpetuated for hundreds of years don't look so bad after all. And I think maybe one of the proponents of this point of view early on was Hassan Fathi, and this is not why he's remembered, but I think this is actually one different take on on reading his interest in this so-called vernacular architecture. Of course, the idea um, that North African vernacular forms influenced people like Le Corbusier when he was doing his travels early on as a student and later, uh, you know, um, these only came out much later, you know, way longer, uh, way after he died. Uh, and it was by immigrant uh, researchers, usually from places like Turkey, uh, Zeynep Celik, for example, who was actually uh, my professor at NGIT, wrote about this. I feel like this is a way to come to terms with the problematic narratives, but it still buys into a notion uh, that differentiates between some sort of modern, whatever that means, and some sort of traditional, whatever that means. I'm more now thinking that, uh, you know, architecture is either good for the environment and the society and or not. Um, so these should be really the terms um, by which we think about architecture, uh, not pigeonhole it into, into some sort of uh, temporal framework. Um, and I think, honestly, what's going on uh, in terms, I mean, architecture as a profession is still failing to really uh, come to terms with the impact of architecture on the environment, right? Um, and so a lot of these so-called vernacular forms uh, are proven to, you know, modernism, modernity, whatever that is, uh, came and went, and these forms uh, are still doing pretty okay. Um, so I would actually move, I think now that 
already 20 years ago, some historians drew the connection between such vernacular forms and the evolution of modern aesthetics. So for example, I like to always uh, tell my Western educated friends who really believe that a flat facade, uh, the lack, you know, the notion that decoration uh, or the lack of, uh, thereof is a sign of modernity. Well, look at any village house almost anywhere from um, Morocco to Egypt up before the destruction of these villages more recently because of economic pressures. Um, and yeah, you see flat facades, flat roofs, cubic forms. Uh, pretty generous windows actually to let in sunlight. And so therefore these kinds of elements that were pointed out um, maybe you know, a century ago by Le Corbusier, this is why when I propose my five points to decolonize architecture, they're not about aesthetics, um, which has been uh, kind of the profession's response to, uh, to localizing design by you know, uh, using aesthetics as a corrective. Well, I think it's about perception um, approaches to understanding built form uh, and the structural systemic um, yeah conditions around the knowledge production around architecture so i would focus on that moving forward since 20 years ago those parallels between vernacular architecture and the modern have already been uh, drawn out great great way to uh, end this Hamad. and for all those who haven't checked it out i would encourage everyone to see that last room of the exhibition that again talks about this exchange between New York and Cairo, basically Frank Lloyd Wright coming to uh, Cairo and kind of critiquing local architecture, but also Egypt designing its own pavilion at the New York World's Fair and sort of what that, what that would have looked like uh, had it actually been built. Uh, so really interesting way to also kind of conclude the show. Uh, I wanna once again, uh, thank everybody for coming. I want to thank the Center for Architecture for having us tonight and for having this wonderful exhibition. And I mean, if I may say one thing. Yes, go ahead. So the um, basically uh, a next chapter of the exhibit will hopefully happen uh, later this year here in Mexico City in the spirit of decolonization, in the spirit of South-South exchange. Um, you know, we tend to always have to talk, you know, Egypt versus the West, uh, Lebanon versus the West, you know, it's always like a kind of a back and forth uh, South-North conversation, very little South-South. So um, a next chapter of the exhibition is now being dreamed up here for Mexico City. Um, that would include sort of elements that bring in, it wouldn't be exactly the same exhibit, it would be the whole thing would be basically redesigned completely, recurated completely with content that relates what was going on in Mexico and what was going on in Egypt. Uh, and in order to do this, uh, since essentially funding sources, and this is actually part of the colonial situation that we all live in, are dependent on certain institutions that are have not expressed very much interest in South-South um, exchanges, um, basically trying to do this as a self-funded exhibition or with uh, your help as New Yorkers who are present, the 20 um, glass panels that are exhibited once the exhibit comes out, uh, comes uh, off the wall tomorrow, uh, they're available essentially to be, you can have one of them. I don't know, what to, I don't want to call it purchase because it's not really a purchase. You're essentially going to be supporting uh, a self-independently uh, funded 
uh, next chapter of the exhibit uh, here in Mexico that would hopefully open in the fall. Uh, so a year after the one that opened in, uh, in New York. Um, and so if you're interested in any of the panels, uh, please maybe um, get my contact from uh, Rami or tell Rami if you know someone who might be interested. Um, so each one can go for $500 and that would make you immediately basically on the wall here in Mexico when the exhibit opens as a funder. Uh, so think of it as actually trying to spread uh, this kind of information and knowledge, and it would be done in both uh, English and Spanish. So if you can also make it to Mexico in the fall, please do. So thank you for that. Definitely a great idea, Mohamed. All right, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikita.com slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.